Okay, okay. Well, welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And as per usual, I have a fantastic, fantabulous, splendiferous. See, I'm using new words. I usually use exciting, but I've got new words now. <laughs> um, guest today, Preston. You know, I don't do bios, so why don't you introduce yourself to the audience for us? First, I'm I'm so happy to be here, and I have some new words to learn. I'm seeing. Uh, so, hey to everyone, uh, Preston Mitchum. I use he/him pronouns, and uh, I'm a Black queer activist advocate and an attorney hailing from Dayton, Ohio, but living in Washington, D.C. Professionally, I'm also the director of advocacy and government affairs with the Trevor Project. We are the world's largest suicide prevention and mental health organization for LGBTQ youth. All right. All right. That is a lot. And so uh, such an important thing for us to talk about right now. So can you um, tell us a little bit more about the Trevor Project and exactly what do y'all do? <laughs> Absolutely, because we do so much. And so I think it's really important to, to really kind of distill uh, the communities we work with and for and how we how we navigate a lot of these spaces. So as stated, we are the world's largest suicide prevention and mental health organization for LGBTQ young people between the ages of 13 to 24. So, you know, we provide 24-7 crisis services specifically for LGBTQ young people. And that's through phone, text, and chat. We know young people, um, and also LGBTQ young people, of course, uh, like to text and chat. And so we want to provide safer spaces and braver spaces for them to be able to communicate uh, in the medium that makes sense for them. We also operate really innovative, really groundbreaking research, advocacy, public training, and peer support programs. We have a really cool interactive website and, and platform called Trevor Space. So when you think of Trevor Space, just really think of Facebooks for LGBTQ young people. So it's really a way for LGBTQ young people to interact, engage, build a community with each other and have their own safe spaces be protected for and by them. We estimate at this point that more than 1.8 million LGBTQ young people between eight, uh, 13 to 24 seriously consider suicide each year in the United States. And so that for us, that makes it simple, right? Our mission is to end suicide among LGBTQ young people. And so the way we do that, of course, is through those mechanisms like research, advocacy, crisis services, training, and peer support. Wow. So let's walk through this because I think one of the things I'm finding in the broader community, and this is the broader community at large, when they're thinking about um, contacting, let's say Trevor, 988, or whatever numbers are out there, a lot of times they don't know exactly what it feels like, like what happens when you call and how are the people trained. And so can you walk through a little bit, like who are the people who are responding to folks reaching out in need and you know, can you say a little bit about the, the the training that they have in order to do that work? For the Trevor Project, our crisis counselors are fully trained to meet the needs of LGBTQ young people. You know, so often, you know, the regrettable truth is so often where there can be lifelines, especially years past, there are some people who are on the opposite ends of those lines who may not be culturally trained to who you are to meet your individual needs. And it's really important that the crisis counselors be trained. You know, I also am an adjunct professor of law. I've taught at Georgetown University Law Center and American Universities Law School. And the one thing that I always tell my students, the, the unfortunate thing is many data sets, many surveys from LGBTQ people, regardless of age, 
tell you that the reason why they don't access a lot of mental health supports, the reason why many of them don't go to hospitals or doctors or dentist offices is frankly because they don't trust that they will be believed about their experiences. They don't trust that the physicians, the dentists, the lawyers at times even, they don't trust they know who they are enough to even communicate with them, Mm -hmm. right? So can you imagine what would happen if you are a non-binary person um, and your pronouns may be they, them, and someone misgenders you? How often would you want to go back to that setting? You likely wouldn't. And so even though you're doing disservice to your own bodies, right, you're in an interesting way, you're trying to protect your bodies because you recognize the harm that actually happens when someone misgenders you, when someone says a racial epithet to you that they may not have known was a harmful word, but should have if they were trained appropriately. And so, you know, the Trevor Project, our crisis counselors, all of them, including our volunteers, are trained to meet the unique needs of LGBTQ people. And, And I actually want to take a step back because I wouldn't say they're unique needs. I would say that they're the needs that every LGBTQ, that every young person has, that every person has, but they just have, we have additional layers based on our sexuality and gender identity that someone needs to specifically understand who they're talking to, how they show up for them. Um, Because if not, unfortunately, people won't call. And and sometimes we've seen that happen. Right. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, you know, an experience where I was actually kind of, um, I was not coming in as a patient, but I was actually coming in to learn more about how a psychiatric ER works and um, how peers, peer workers could be supportive in the psychiatric ER. And when I came to visit with the team, the team welcomed me by saying, welcome to the jungle. Mm. And I thought, okay, what, 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 what? <laughs> it was like, welcome to the jungle. And I'm like, you're saying that to a black person. Y'all get that, don't you? Like that is wow. really offensive. Like, do you not get that? Wow. So I, I re- repeated back I rephrase it for them. And I say, yes, I see it's super busy here. There's so much going on and you have to manage all the people coming out and, you know, people who were in pain and kind of wanting you to help them straight away. Wow. Yeah. This is a really, really, really busy place. They said, yeah, it's the jungle. And I'm like, y'all aren't getting it yet. Are you right? (laughs) And I kept thinking, what must it be like for somebody who's actually coming into services? And if they were to hear that kind of language, who's, you know, black or brown. Exactly. Yeah. And it's supposed to be a life-saving service, right? It's supposed to be a service where people are attempting Mm -hmm. to have their needs met. I mean, think about how vulnerable in a position you need to be in to call a lifeline, to go to the hospital, to say, I need help for something. And then someone actually says something to you or meets you in a way that's offensive or harmful to your community and your identities. Like that would make you not want to interact with them any longer. Mm -hmm. And so it's really doing a disservice. So your example, I mean, it's a, it's a frustrating one because I couldn't imagine how I, how I would respond if if I heard that. But I do think as, as Black folks, frankly, as LGBTQ folks, as queer, trans, and non-binary folks, we're oftentimes met with language like that. And we're oftentimes trying to talk to people about how you, how do you treat us. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, you powerfully said that sometimes not showing up is the protective thing, while people see that as kind of like, well, you're not making wise choices, when in fact, you are making wise choices. Mm -hmm. It's sadly, you know, we, we want to have other choices. That's why, you know, Trevor Project exists. But if things, you know, aren't meeting, you know, our particular need from a cultural standpoint, um, and you're not feeling safe or trusted, the choice is to go back. And that, kind of makes sense, you know? So, yeah, yeah. So are you finding it all, um, you know, I've, I've seen elsewhere that 
on different um, call lines, like we have a, a you know a large state call line here that's more like an emotional support call line during COVID, that the callers were skewing quite young, kind of unexpectedly as very young. Are you finding that, you know, even though you're between 13 and 24, is it skewing any younger or you're finding- That's interesting because I think think the common sense would be that that is true. And I actually am not sure. What I can say Mm. is though, we, we have so much data to even support the fact that even through the even through the Biden-Harris administration, so much data to support the fact that we blatantly are in a national youth crisis, right? And, and that is skewing younger and younger, right? We see recent mm-hmm. CDC studies and other surveys to support that when people are, maybe not calling, but at least are, you're, they're showing signs and symptoms of depression, anxiety, and also suicidal ideations and thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think, yes, that common, that common logic and theme, unfortunately, is that, yeah, like we are seeing younger people um, who are experiencing suicidal thoughts. And, and, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, it shouldn't be much of a shock, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's important to note that when it comes to LGBTQ young people, especially, right, they are not inherently prone to mental health challenges because of their sexual orientation and gender identity, right. but rather placed at a higher risk because of their experiences of rejection and victimization and sometimes crim- criminalization, mm-hmm. um, right? And so that's important to note because... What, what I think we have to then do is, if that's the case, how do we make sure that LGBTQ young people live in an accepting community, have access to, you know, these affirming schools, and, and really have this social support from friends and family uh, that will need them the most? And so, yes, even our own research with Morning Consult has suggested that, you know, 82% of trans and non-binary youth say that threats of violence against our spaces, right, these LGBTQ safe spaces community centers, clubs, pride events, drag shows, give them stress or anxiety often. And a lot of that is tending to skew younger. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes I do think we need to, you know, discuss what does that mean then for these bills that have popped up all of 2022, right, that are anti-LGBTQ? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for the number of bills this year in 2023 already that have popped up, right? Our own estimates have showed us that more than 150 bills have been introduced in 25 states in 2023 alone already, covering a gamut of issue areas from schools to things related to mental health care, et cetera, all in attacking, for the lack of a better word, or maybe the perfect word, uh, LGBTQ young people. So skewing younger, and frankly, they're being legislated in that way. And that makes it even more damaging. Yeah, I'm I'm almost without words, which is kind of rare, but I'm now right. sitting here literally without words because this is like your formative years, you know, the, right. the time when, you know, we're supposed to be f- helping people love themselves, yes. you know, that, that sort of self-love, that self-esteem and um, it just gets eroded, eroded, eroded by these kind of things, and 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 that's what and you know impacts also your emotional well being, mental health, and also giving meaning and purpose to living. If if bills are saying you aren't worthy, how do you help people see their worthiness? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, listen, there's been so many bills that I have actually seen that the Trevor Project tracks, I think would blow many people away what some of the bills are saying, right? Even things like last year in 2022, we saw many bills all over the country, but especially the South and Midwestern portion of the United States around don't say gay or trans. So even like the mere uttering 
of words, the mere teaching yes. of words. And around the same time we were actually hearing this happen in places like Florida, especially, we were also seeing passages or at least introductions of things like anti-critical race theory bills. This year already, mm-hmm. Governor DeSantis introduced a bill related to, you know, um, the eradication, the, the, the erasure of an AP African-American history course. First of all, I didn't even know there was a such thing. <laughs> I wish there was a such thing when I was growing up around an uh, AP African-American history course. But I think we ha- I say that because, you know, the word that we haven't used yet, and I want us to use it accurately because many people don't, I know we know that, <laughs> is the word intersectionality. Yeah. So like there, there are absolutely times that we're seeing that we have don't say gay trans or trans. Now we have don't take courses on African-American history. Don't have courses on critical race theory. So think about who's impacted at the intersection of that, right? It's Black yeah. folks. It is queer, trans, and non-binary folks. And who's in the middle of that are Black LGBTQ young people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think, you know, suffice to say the data even show that Black, because of things like the minority stress model and other stressors related to race and gender and poverty, et cetera, Black LGBTQ youth, among others, are some of the highest impacted by some of these bills that are popping up, then end up having higher rates of depression and anxiety and other symptoms that cause mental health challenges. So that is who I often show up for, because not only is it who I am, Frankly, that's just what the data, that's just what the data also show. Right, right, right. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And I think that's such an important point to to make and stress so people can understand the connective tissue, the intersectionality. So I, yeah, I'm I'm not even going to go into some things I want to go into right now because (laughs) I actually, you know, this is going to be a curiosity question about you and your trajectory in your career. We're going to go back to Trevor Project, but you know, you just didn't, as I say, get born and boom, you're at the Trevor Project. So how did how did you actually determine that this was the career that you wanted or the, the work that you wanted to do? I have always loved advocacy. I've always loved public policy. And I've always loved storytelling and supporting people. And so, you know, I have always said I am never connected to any particular institution or organization. I'm connected to people. So, so as long as I'm able to support people in whatever capacity, I'm good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I went to law school at a historically Black law school, North Carolina Central University School of Law in Durham, North Carolina. Loved it. And I really, you know, even before that, for sure, I started to explore a lot of things related to race and gender and sexuality in the confines of the law. But when I was in law school, there was something that was so special about having most of my classmates be Black having most of us actually discuss the ways law specifically impacts Black folks across the diaspora. Mm -hmm. And frankly, what that means for us and our longevity and sustainability. And I just started to explore more. Like, I didn't want to go the court route. I didn't want to litigate. There was just something so special about advocating for people, Mm -hmm. about connecting with folks who have the power to get the people who you love their right to resources and tools and just general access. And it made me fall in love with my community even more. And so, you know, I I just started working initially doing a lot of work um, on the Affordable Health Care Act, actually, and then started to explore more work and around the school to prison pipeline, specifically for LGBTQ plus youth. And then that took me a lot of work on reproductive health rights and justice. So for the longest, I spent in abortion spaces and abortion access spaces. 
um, and, you know, really working for the rights of, of women and girls and trans and non-binary folks and their right to have abortion care, right? Mm-hmm. Like not just the literal right, but the access of that right. And, and that's when I really started to think people keep discussing rights and liberties, but none of that means anything without access. So I wanted to make sure we fought for access more than anything else, because what good is a right if you can't access that right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is what then took me to what connected us across everything. And it was health, right? Whether it was Mm -hmm. mental health, physical health, emotional health, psychosocial health, everything was connected to health in some some form. And so, you know, mental health became important to me. Mental health, frankly, was always important to me. You know, I, I also, you know, publicly state that I'm a suicide attempt survivor and a suicide loss survivor. Mm-hmm. And I just think being able to actually speak about these things, being able to be a possibility model for young Black queer kids who I never thought I was and could be growing up, it's just, it's an embarrassment of riches, honestly. And so, you know, suffice to say for me, I, I just always want to just say like everything to me is about connection to people and their purpose and to really building them up. And I'll close this part by saying, you know, one of the things that have always frustrated me growing up, I would always hear, even in my adulthood, frankly, always hear folks say, you know, I want to be the voice for the voiceless. And everyone has a voice. Thank no you. one is voiceless. Snap, not snap, a single snap. person. <laughs> like not a single person is voiceless. Yes. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of savior, like a savior complex that comes into play when we think we're speaking up for people. But I'll tell you this, right? Our goal and our work and my mission at least is to make sure that we're empowering people to learn their voice, right? To hone their voice and their talents, but to never speak in place of their voice because everyone has a voice. Yes. Yeah. I, snaps, claps, thumbs up, anything that I could do. If I had 10 hands, I we would all be doing it. <laughs> but I think that is, you know, I, I heard that in a meeting, of, you know, full of advocates and people of color, and they were talking about being voice for the voices. And I'm thinking, everybody has a voice. Mm-hmm. We don't listen. Exactly. Um, you know, or their voice is saying something that's contradictory to what people want. So they're not attending to what people are saying. So I think I think this is such a powerful thing to shift it from speaking up or on behalf of the voiceless to helping people be able, as you say, to hone and um, use their voice in a variety of spaces and to invite people to our spaces to hear what we're saying, not always us going to quote unquote their spaces. That's another thing that I kind of can go on and on about. But <laughs> let's um this is what advocacy is all about. And and yes, I I I, I asked, you know, to you to, to to share your story. And I love that you put it this way that um about being a possibility model. I love that. I, I've not heard that term before. I'm gonna borrow it if you don't mind. So I think sometimes yes. it feels like um you know, model minority or whatever, you know, so that's not what we're really talking about when um, I'm, I'm hoping as I talk to different guests, especially guests of color, you know, LGBTQ, you know, who are doing amazing things in this field, that it becomes a sort of uh, an example of what the possibilities are. So it is a possibility model. I love that. Absolutely. And to give, and to also give credit to where credit is due. Years ago, I remember hearing Laverne Cox in an interview and they were discussing like her being on time magazine and a few different pieces when she, you know, was starting in orange is the new black and receiving award recognition and nominations. And she, and I remember her using that term mm-hmm. and I was like, that's such a fascinating term. And I just started to think about what that actually meant for me as a, 
as a as a young black queer person. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I also want to give, you know, give the recognition to her as well. Awesome. Thank you. So now let's get back to, to the to the Trevor project. This is where you are, you know, focusing on pu- public policy, storytelling, connecting to people, all of those things. When we look at especially uh, the the high rates of young LGBTQ folk having uh, thoughts of suicide. What are some things you think that we need to focus on in the policy, policy-wise or program-wise? Like, what could we be doing better at the community level? Oh, uh, everything. Um, <laughs> that, right. You know, I, I, I really hate saying that, but it is the truth. I mean, we we all have a role to play in protecting LGBTQ young people. You know, so so much data supports that. You know, if young people, if LGBTQ young people had more affirming schools, they're less likely to attempt or consider suicide, even for that matter. If they have more affirming and accepting homes, they're less likely to to attempt or consider suicide. Right. So all of this is really central on what is the role of policy and really of people and supporting LGBT young people, right? And to, and to make sure that they feel supported and affirmed. We have a stat that we always share at the Trevor Project, and it is that for every one accepting adult, just one accepting adult, it reduces the risk of, of suicide for LGBT young people by 40%. Wow. One adult. And so I just think about like you and me talking, right? Like your listeners listening in on this conversation who who really want to make sure that they are, you know, figuring out better ways to, to step into, you know, LGBT young, young people's lives. Just one reduces the risk of a suicide by 40%. And that is really important because that does mean at a community level, what are we doing? Yeah. Right. Supportive adults are really vital for suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so, something that's really important. And we're discussing family members, teachers, doctors, lawyers, like folks who tend to interact more often with LGBTQ young people. Yeah. And so, yes, we need to make sure that at a community level, especially that LGBTQ young people feel seen, affirmed, and heard. Uh, and that's just something that's really important. So, you know, think about the school setting. Again, what are we doing to actually promote things like gender and sexuality alliances and things that are important? Are we introducing ourselves with our pronouns to demystify and normalize pronoun usage? Are we actually providing a listening ear to LGBTQ young people? Are we checking ourselves? Are we checking into how we are maybe not showing up for LGBTQ young people. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was sharing with some friends and colleagues was even this notion of when people are coming out or as I you know, have lately been saying, inviting in, um, mm-hmm. shout out to Darnell Moore and David Johns, you know, mm-hmm. about inviting in, making sure that people are inviting you into their life, inviting you in to these conversations. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, when I was growing up and I finally decided to invite people in, I remember the consistency of which I heard someone say, oh, of course, I knew. And I would then say to them, finally, well, what did you do to protect me? Hmm. If you knew, right, why did it take me so long to tell you? Yeah, There wasn't a safe space for me. It didn't feel safe. So thank you for knowing. Shout out to you. <laughs> but why didn't you protect me? Yes. And then, of course, people don't know what to say when you put it back onto them. Right. And so, again, at a community level, we just need to be a lot more supportive and very vocal in our support. One, it's safe to do so, right? There are different cultural dynamics or different community dynamics, and I respect that. But also, if none of us are speaking up on behalf of communities who we know are already historically oppressed, then how do we how do we make sure that they get equity and dignity? Right, right, exactly. And especially when if we if we're speaking up in ways that 
align with what folks want. Because I think a lot of times, you know, people can be speaking up, but it may not be aligned with what young, how young people have articulated what they want and need, but what adults and others feel that the young people should have. And that, and that then gets wrapped up in sort of, but that is my way of protecting you. And I was like, well, that really wasn't kind of what I was looking for, but thanks for sharing, but no, <laughs> you know? Yes. So, you know, when we're talking about safe and brave spaces, which, um, you know, when people contact Trevor, Trevor Project, that's that safe and brave space. One of the things that keeps coming up over and over and over again within, you know, call centers and technology and use of digital therapeutics, we can we can go down the whole nine yards around privacy and protections. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about that so folks understand what information is collected, how it's collected, what information is shared when they contact um, Trevor Project. Uh, so the information is not shared. If that's so, we we make sure that. There, there is extreme privacy among the folks who are make, who are contacting us. That's what they trust in. Mm-hmm. They, they trust in us to make sure that their information is protected because what's really important is to, to make sure that they feel safe, yes. right? And we know that there are many LGBTQ young people who are contacting us, who are on our website, among other things, because they don't feel they're in an environment where they are protected and that they feel safe enough to show up as who they authentically are. So one one thing that's incredibly important to us is privacy and privacy rights and protecting young people to to be who they are until they're ready uh, to to publicly display that for folks, if ever. Mm -hmm. There's a difficult conversation that I think many people are not having about the harm of visibility. Mm. And so, you know, years ago, at, at this point, a decade ago, actually, I wrote an article in The Atlantic called on national coming out day don't disparage the closet and what i really i was just struck with the amount of the amount of people and the hyper focus on quote-unquote coming out that it just didn't feel right to me Mm -hmm. like on one hand i always wanted to honor that someone can be who they are they want to show up they want to let people into their lives that's that's beautiful and it's important. And I pray for a world where that can be the case for everyone. On the flip side, I rarely at the time, this is early 2010s, I rarely at the time saw people, many people, right, at a macro level, struggling with this idea that maybe some people never will be out. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's never safe for them. Maybe they don't live in an environment where they can be okay and they'll have social safety nets. Maybe they'll be in, maybe they have an increased visibility which leads to to death yes right and those are things that are not hyperbolic that has actually happened and still happens Mm -hmm. and so i wanted so i think for us and for me especially privacy is something that's incredibly important to the point where if you actually go to the trevorproject.org we have a quick exit feature that is really important and that i know that has received some pushback but i proudly discuss it because the reason why that quick exit feature is there is not to hide information from parents or guardians. It is not to right, like hide a conversation that young people may eventually want to have with their parents. It's so they can feel protected until they are ready mm-hmm. to have those conversations. And young people's safety and privacy matters over anything that someone feels about someone not telling them something any day. Yeah. Yeah, though that's you know again you're just dropping. I'll, I'll say you're dropping the wisdom already. I know we're going to do some wisdom dropping later, but <laughs> this this is such an important message because 
you know, this happens in the, the peer and consumer survivor ex patient, like all this, these words, um, movement as well, where I'll never forget, uh, we wanted to select somebody for a, a statewide conference to be the keynote speaker. And the person's name was suggested and people were quite upset. It was a person of color, it was a black person. They were like, well, you know, they don't really come, they're not really out about their mental health condition. They don't really talk about it. And I had to kind of help people think about, but, but number one, sort of, many of us know. Number two, they know how to show up and talk about the issues in, in ways that definitely are in sync with how you think about uh, using lived experience to inform your work and, and the things that you're doing. I said, and think about this person's role, uh, that they're they're Black, they're a lawyer, <laughs> um, they're, they're working within a system, and there may be reasons why they can't be as explicit as out as other people are, especially as a, a quote unquote black professional. I'm just going to use that term, but first being black, mm-hmm. that there we already got enough stuff going on, right? As black yeah. folk. Yeah. And, and then we have to determine, well, now we're we going to share this other thing that that is kind of that intersectionality and there's there's makes it more complex. And some people choose not to do that. And we have to honor that choice. That's what I feel needs to happen. Some people don't like to admit this, but there is an absolute privilege with being out. Yeah. Right. There, there's an absolute privilege in it. Right. Even, even the bravery that you're able to have to come out or to invite someone in, I would argue is a sign of privilege. Now, is it maybe the sign of privilege that a straight white man or a straight white woman would have? No. Right. Because not all privilege is equal. Mm-hmm. But it, it is it is absolutely a, a privilege and sometimes a freeing one to be able to even say, you know what, this is how I'm operating. This is how I'm living. And, you know, I would rather choose myself than anyone else. That That is a privilege yeah. to be able to know that everyone can reject you. Right. Mm-hmm. And did you'll somehow be OK is a privilege. Yeah. Right. Not everyone has access. Not everyone can do that. And it's important to note. Who are the people who are not doing it, right? What are their races? What are their backgrounds? Mm-hmm. What is their socioeconomic status? I guarantee you, most of them have a darker hue who are not coming out. I guarantee you, most of them have families who may have a particular religious or spiritual background. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you, many of them are in the South and the Midwest, right? And I, I can just guarantee you many factors. And I think we have to explore just because we're having a difficult time doesn't mean that it wasn't a privilege for us to be able to be more visible. Right. There's, there's certainly a danger to visibility and to choose to still come out. And, and even with that, that that's a sight to behold. And I think people need to really reckon with that for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So these, these are things like, I don't, I don't think any of this stuff is ever easy. Otherwise, you know, I don't, I don't know, life would be completely different, right. but I, I do think taking time to be very introspective and, and also very uh, respectful. And I say, you know, withhold any kind of judgment to kind of have a better and deeper understanding of what is that individual going through? What, what is it like, like be in their body and, and have to figure out a lot of these things? It's a lot. Yes. So do you have anything else that you'd like to talk about relative to 988 and um, Trevor Project, so people kind of know if I call 988 that, they, that they're going to transfer me to Trevor? Like, like, can you help us understand that a little bit? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm excited, too, because this is really a groundbreaking moment for not only the organization, but I would argue for LGBTQ young people who are making sure that they 
can find a safe space for them when they're calling the lifeline. So we know in July of 2022, 988 went live, right? The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline went live. Um, and so for months, the Trevor Project was working with Vibrant Emotional Health, the administrator of the Lifeline, and SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, in terms of, you know, how are we making sure that we're showing up and that people who are calling, especially like those individuals who, who are in communities that have higher risk of, of suicidal ideation and attempts. And, you know, we, we offered our services. And so through money, many, many months and, and several beautiful conversations, we were able to actually now have a pilot uh, offered through SAMHSA and Vibrant where a young per LGBTQ young person between 13 and 24 can dial 988 or even text and chat. And when they're dialing in, they can press three and they'll be transferred to a trained counselor uh, at the Trevor Project. Mm -hmm. So they'll actually be talking to someone who is trained, who's culturally responsive to meet the needs of LGBTQ young people. And, you know, from what I'm hearing, you know, the goal is to expand this beyond just LGBTQ young people in terms of like other communities who are at risk, so like Black youth, Indigenous youth, among others. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really important. We all need access to resources. We all need quick resources. We all need access to be able to develop a safety plan and be safe. And so, yeah, so we, there, there is a, a partnership uh, sort of speak, uh, through a pilot project. And so, you know, the goal is to expand that, of course, but really excited. And we're already really seeing some, some life-saving uh, components attached to that. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, as we start to wrap up, I asked people to do that one bit of wisdom dropping. I told you I would get to this later. You were dropping wisdom all mm -hmm. along. I was snapping, clapping, thumbs up, and adding 10 hands to it. But if there's one piece of wisdom that you would want to leave the listeners with at, at this time, kind of what would that be? I have been seeing this so much lately. You know, I have so many things in the works, things I'm launching very soon in the near future. And I, I just kept sharing with my friends and my partner, like, I'm afraid. Mm. And the one thing that people kept saying to me in some shape, fashion or form was do it anyway. Mm. Like we'll support you. We have you do it. And so I'm just leaning on this wisdom being do it afraid, right? If there's a project that you have and you don't really understand A through Z, do it afraid, mm -hmm. right? If there's someone who you've been interested in and you don't know how they're going to receive you, do it afraid. Right. If there's a grant that you want to receive and you don't know the proposal you want to write, do it and do it afraid. And so that is what I'm really leaning into. Probably maybe a different words of wisdom, but I can tell you this. It's been the thing that's been really carrying me over for the past several weeks. Wow. Perfect. I mean, just so beautifully stated, just so beautifully stated. But I just want to thank you for your time and sharing all of this information and sharing a piece of yourself as well. So thank you very much for joining us on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you again for listening in. And I always have to do the little spiel of, you know, like, subscribe, comment. However, you all know that the most important thing that anybody can do with the podcast is to share. This is important information that folks need to hear. And the best way for them to hear it is for you to share it. So that's the biggest ask that I would have. And also for you to join us next time on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.